friends, welcome back, episode number three, at least I think that's what we're on, I don't know, I lost track, nothing here is very polished anyways, it's not supposed to be, it's just me and you and God's word, I mean there's a microphone and a recording unit and a computer and but other than that, it's just me and you. Nothing official, nothing polished. These episodes aren't even edited, if you can believe it. There is no producer. There are no button pushers. There are no show notes. It's just me and you and God's Word. Welcome back. Glad to have you. We're going to continue our journey Studying God's Word on the basis of Luther's small catechism. If you have not listened to the other shows, what are there, two maybe of them, then what are you even doing here? Stop listening. Go back. Don't even progress any further. Did you? No, seriously, stop. Stop. Go back. You don't have to, I guess. Do whatever you want. If you listen to the last episode, you will remember that I whetted your appetite for this episode. I promised you that we would talk about the law, the rules. We'll talk about how they are ah, misunderstood and abused. We'll get into that. But first... If you remember from your last from our last episode I talked about uh God's God's word the Bible how we can be confident in God's word the message of God's word how we can be confident that God exists So let me ask you this If the Bible is God's verbally inspired word and it is then does that mean that all of the parts of the Bible are of equal importance? Hmm. Think about it. Are all the parts of God's Word of equal importance? Well, the answer is, well, yes and no. On the one hand, all of the Bible is God's Word, which means all of the Bible is important. So no part of the Bible is less important, but there are other parts of the Bible that are more important. Paul himself said so, by the way. I'm going to read you two verses from Colossians chapter 2. Here's what Paul says, Therefore do not let anyone judge you in regard to food or drink, in regard to a festival or a new moon, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were coming, but the body belongs to Christ. These are a shadow of the things that were coming. So Paul is admitting that, yes, there were rules about food and drink, about festivals, new moons, and Sabbath days, but he calls them a shadow. What's he mean by that? Well, let me, let me flesh that out for you a little bit. I want you to imagine that you are standing in a long hallway, 
And at the end of the hallway is a 90-degree turn to the left or the right, whichever you prefer. As you stand in the hallway, you can hear the footsteps of somebody walking down that 90-degree turn from you. They're right around the corner. And as they get closer, imagine that their shadow is now falling and on the intersection of your two hallways, and you can see the shadow. Now, you could look at that shadow, and you could make some observations, right? You could perhaps see that this shadow is wearing slacks and not a dress. Slacks, there's an old word, huh? I guess people used to just say pants. But then it sounds weird if you say, well, he's wearing pants. Well, that's a whole different image. Yeah, I hope he's wearing pants. I'm going to be more specific. I'm going to say slacks. Let's stick with that. Let's stick with slacks. You can see from the shadow that this individual is wearing slacks and not a dress. You could see from the shadow that this individual has short hair and not long hair. You can see from the shadow that this individual has the broad has broad shoulders, not slender shoulders. And so from these observations, you're, you're able to come to a couple of conclusions. You think, well, perhaps this is a man instead of a woman. And maybe you'd be right. But there's a lot more detail, isn't there, that you can't get from the shadow. You don't know what color the hair is. What, what the face looks like, what color the slacks are. But once the person comes around the corner, you can get those details if you stop looking at the shadow and start looking at the person, right? You can see the color of the hair. You can see the details of the face. And once that person comes around the corner, you'd kind of be dumb if you kept looking at the shadow and going like, I can't really figure it out. I don't really know what it's talking about, what this person looks like. Somebody else would say, well, guy, stop looking at the shadow. Start looking at the body. These are a shadow of the things that were coming, but the body belongs to Christ, Paul says. So these rules were anticipatory. They were the shadow that gave some precursor details about Christ to whom the body belonged. See, that's the right proper rule, or role rather, of God's law. Some of his laws were shadows, we call that, we call that the ceremonial law. We'll make that distinction here in a minute. But the ceremonial law, in fact, we'd say we're pointing ahead to Christ. So, God's law, if you are following along in your Luther's Catechism from NPH, the newest one that they have published, we are on page 33. And you'll notice the subheading there right before question number 12, God's law, a great blessing. I wonder how many people have the opposite impression of God's law. They'd say, God's law, a great burden. No. God's law, a great blessing. So here's the first question in this section of the Catechism. What do we mean when we speak 
of God's law. Matthew 19, If you would enter eternal life, keep the commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, there you have it, friends. Jesus himself said, you want to get home to heaven someday, keep the rules. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Well, we got a problem right away, don't we? We haven't studied the laws yet. Jesus is referring to the Ten Commandments. We're going to get into that coming up. And it won't take you very long studying the Ten Commandments before you come to the conclusion, I think I have broken all ten of the commandments. And I would say, yes, you are correct. You have broken all ten of the commandments. And if you must keep the commandments perfectly to get into heaven, then what might we conclude? (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. A big uh uh-oh. I have broken commandments. You have broken commandments. No heaven for those who break the commandments. Do you see how even the commandments are pointing you to Jesus Christ? Because we are all forced at that exact point to cry out, I've made a mess of this. Who can save me? And the law points to Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the body. So what do we mean when we speak of God's law? It is God's rules. It's the way God wants us to live. But God's law was given first and foremost to the Jews. Do you remember from the last episode? Again, if you haven't listened to it, go back and listen to it. Remember that the Bible uh, distinguished all people in the world into two groups, Jews and Gentiles. The Jews had the law. The Gentiles did not. So the law tells us what is right and wrong, what we should do and what we shouldn't do. That's what laws do, right? God's law does the same. It tells you what is right and what is wrong. But God's law is a little bit more comprehensive, let's say. Remember that God's law was given as a whole package deal to the nation of the Jews in in the Old Testament. And here's the thing. You are not a Jew in the Old Testament, right? You might be a Jew if you're listening to this. I don't know. But you're certainly not a Jew in the Old Testament if you're alive. So what do we make then of God's laws that were written down in the Old Testament? They were written specifically for that nation at that time. Well, when we look at God's law, we can make some, we can have some distinguishing features from laws from groups of laws. I'm not saying that very well. We can divide God's law up into a couple of categories. So, for instance, let me get specific. Part of God's laws were called civil laws. 
Those were the laws that would delineate what equaled a crime and what should be the punishment for that crime in the nation of Israel. Now remember, they lived in the Old Testament, they lived in a theocracy. God was the king. Until, of course, the people rejected God and wanted a real earthly king. But as the law comes, it's coming to those who live in a theocracy. So God is the king of the nation. And so doesn't it make sense that God would issue civil laws and prescribe punishments or fines for breaking those laws? Every nation needs that. So you can learn quite a lot about God by reading the civil laws. But remember... You are not a Jew living in the Old Testament under a theocracy. So you cannot physically stone an adulterer or an adulteress in the middle of the street in broad daylight. We call that murder. Not good. Don't do that. And yet God in his civil laws, did give that punishment. Another category of God's law were called the ceremonial laws. And those are the ones that that regulated the worship life of the Jews in the Old Testament. Those were the laws that were talking about the Sabbath day and the sacrifices. And those are the laws that very, very particularly pointed ahead to Jesus Christ. When God said that you should sacrifice a bull and that the blood of the bull was shed for sin or the goat on the great day of atonement, let's say it that way. That was pointing ahead. When the lambs were sacrificed, those Passover lambs, it was a picture, a picture God had been drawing for thousands of years so that when the real lamb of God, Jesus Christ would come, then we would recognize him as the Savior, recognize him as the Lamb of God, and not miss our Savior. So the ceremonial laws were pointing ahead to Jesus. But once Jesus comes, you don't need to keep looking at the shadow anymore. Those laws have served their purpose. You are not a Jew living in the Old Testament, worshiping at the temple. And we come to the third and final category. So the first category we were talking about was the civil laws that God gave that governed the nation of Israel under their theocracy. The second group was the ceremonial laws, the worship worship life-regulating laws that God had given to the Jews of the Old Testament. And then we come to the third and final category, the moral law. And now this, this is the law that God meant to give and did give to all people of all time. The moral law. So how did God then give his moral law 
to everyone? That's question number 13, page 34. So how does he give that moral law to everyone? This is a passage that we read in the last episode, Romans 2, 14 and 15. When Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. So the law is written on you from the day you were born. You know in broad strokes right from wrong. In broad strokes. You know by nature, no one has to tell you, don't walk down the sidewalk and punch someone in the tooth. You know by nature, don't take something that isn't yours. That's called stealing. We all know this by nature. Even before we're taught this, it is in our conscience. But now listen to this, how how verse 15 ends. So the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So the Gentiles don't have the written law, but they do know by nature some of the things they should and shouldn't do, but their consciences can sometimes still become confused. Sometimes their conscience excuses them when it should condemn them. And sometimes their conscience condemns them when it should not condemn them. So how do you clear that up then? Does God just want us living in this moral confusion where we're like, well, sometimes uh, sometimes stealing is good because we're starving and we, that's what we think. Because that makes sense to me by nature. But is that true? Does God really want us living in this moral confusion? Does God want us just making up the laws as we go, deciding on the fly what is good and what is bad? If that's true, if that's what he wants, then or you're convinced that's what he wants, then you have landed yourself in moral relativism. You are saying that there is no objective standard from God about what is good and bad, what is right and what is wrong. But don't go there. You'll find yourself living in confusion. So thankfully, praise be to God, and I'm not using his name in vain, I mean this, thanks be to God that he cleared it up. He cleared it up by giving his law in a second way, not just on the heart, but Deuteronomy 4.13, he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone. John 1.17 says the law was given through Moses. So that's how God cleared it up for us. He wrote it down. There was a time, a very brief time, when people, human beings, didn't need it written down. Adam and Eve did not need God's law written down because they were made in perfection. That means that their will, 
what they wanted, always perfectly aligned with God's will, what God wanted. So there was never any question. There was never any moral ambiguity or confusion for Adam and Eve until, until they rebelled against God, ate the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and sin entered the world. And you can just picture storm clouds or fog besetting the heart and the mind so that once what was once previously perfectly clear now becomes foggy. Now becomes difficult to decipher. So God clears up that confusion by giving us the law in the second way. He wrote it down. He wrote it down. And when that law is preached, it does something to us. It serves a purpose. We say that the law serves three purposes. Maybe you remember this from your confirmation days if you're a confirmed Lutheran. If you're not a confirmed Lutheran, I'm very glad to have you here. But the law serves three purposes, and maybe you remember this, curb, mirror, and guide. So God's law serves as a a curb Well, what does a curb do? You know what a curb is. What does it do? A curb separates the sidewalk from the road, right? So a curb is there to protect the pedestrians from out-of-control cars. If you've ever seen a, a car a careen into a curb at a high rate of speed, you know that it doesn't end well for the car, right? So here's a couple passages that talks about God's law as a curb. 1 Timothy 1, 9 and 10, The law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, that is sound preaching, uh, sound teaching, rather. That is the curb, the law is a curb. It's designed for protection. It is also designed to strike fear into the heart of anyone who would be a criminal. Psalm 119, 120, My flesh trembles for fear of you. I am afraid of your judgments, says David. And rightfully so. Deuteronomy 4, 24, The Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And one more passage here, Romans 13, 2 and 3. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. And we would say the just rulers carry out their function properly. 
and being a terror to bad guys. See, that's what God's law as a curb does. It stops people from doing bad things. And it does that by threatening. If you kill somebody, God will hold you accountable. You may even face consequences for your poor decisions, let's say it that way, consequences, let's be more specific, for your sins here on earth. Murderers are put in jail. That is a consequence on earth. But it's nothing compared to the consequence that an unrepentant murderer will face when he faces the angry, consuming fire, jealous God. That is one of the roles that the law plays. It is a curb. It protects us from the evil intents of those around us by threatening with punishment anyone who would break the law of God. The curb, the law is a curb, applies to all human beings who are alive. So that's the curb. How about the mirror? What do we mean when we say that God's law acts as a mirror in the hearts of all people. Well, I mean, think about it. What is a mirror for? It's to show you what you really look like. And, you know, sometimes you need a good long look in the mirror. Sometimes I wish those who go out in public (laughs) would spend a little bit more time first looking in the mirror. Pajama pant, not a good look in public. Spend some time looking in the mirror. You ever met a self-deceived person? Kids sometimes are self-deceived. They think something looks really good that doesn't actually look really good, but they're convinced it looks really good. People who haven't looked in the mirror can be convinced that they look pretty good too. They're self-deceived. It's not until you hold up a mirror that you go, well, gee, you know, Susie, that... uh, Hairstyle of having half of it plastered to your face and the other half sticking straight up. Not a good look there, Susie. Look in the mirror. See what you look like. Well, God's law does the same thing. Romans 3.20, by works of the law, no human being will be justified. Whoa, that is a loaded statement. By works of the law, no human being will be justified. There's a big church word, huh? Justified, justification. We'll talk about that more later on as we go. But to be justified means to be declared not guilty. So that declaration, not guilty, that doesn't come by the law. It doesn't come by the law. No human being will be justified in God's sight. No human being will be not guilty in God's sight by the law. Because through the law, here's the role of the law, through the law comes knowledge of sin. It shows you what you really look like. We'll stick with Romans for one more verse. Romans 7, 7. If it had not been for the law, Paul says, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. So there is coveting in our hearts, but we don't know it's there until the law holds up a mirror and says, hey, by the way, check out your heart. Full of covet, bub. You ain't looking so hot when God looks at you. 
Why do we need the law to do that? Why do we need the law to show us how we really look? Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The law has to perform this work because it relates to our salvation. If you don't fix the way you look, you don't get into heaven. But look what it says. There's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. And that includes your name. Your name. You, listener, fill in the blank. You cannot save yourself. There is only one name that saves you. The name of Jesus Christ. So when we look in the mirror of God's law and we say, Yikes! I do not look so good. I better fix myself. And then you realize that ain't possible. Can you really stop your heart from coveting? Good luck. Because that sin is going to come up again and again and just go through the list of sins as we will soon in the, in, as summarized in the Ten Commandments. You can't just will yourself to stop sinning because even the thoughts that occur in your heads are sins. There is only one name given to you that you can be saved by, Jesus Christ. So do you see the first two functions of the law? The curb of God's law threatens you. Do not go down the pathway of sin because God will smash you for it. The mirror of God's law shows you just how far down that pathway you already are. So that you would cry out, Oh, who can fix this? Who can fix my ugliness? Who can take away my impatience? Because I can't, st- I can't conquer this. And what is the law doing? It's driving you. Driving you to your knees. Painting you in the same corner of all of humanity that says, it is this and nothing else for you under your own power. It is condemnation and punishment for all of humanity if they are left to their own way. So, my friends, who have now heard of the role of the law, welcome to the club. We're all in the same corner. That's the law is a curb and a mirror. But how about this third use? A guide. You know what a guide does, right? If you hire a fishing guide or a hunting guide, what's their job? To show you where the fishes are so you can hunt for fish. To show you where the elk or the deer are so you can fish for your hunt. See what I did there? I'm not a hunter or a fisherman, really. I pretend to be. I'm not really. But that's what a guide does, right? A guide is someone who grabs you by the hand and says, this way, come on, this way now. 
Now, the guide of God's law does not apply to all people. Understand this. The guide only applies to Christians, those who have faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior from sin. So the curb and the mirror, that applies to everyone, including Christians. But the guide now only applies to Christians. Let's read some verses that talk about God's law as a guide. Here's a famous one, Psalm 119. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. It shows me the way to go. It's laying out before me the kind of life that would make my heavenly Father smile. That's what the guide does. It shows you what things to do to live a thank-filled and thankful life to your Savior, Jesus, who rescued you. Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? Answer, by guarding it according to your word. By the law that now shows me how to say thank you. And finally, that's why we want to follow God's law. Not because we have to, but because I want to. Just think, especially if you have kids or if you've been a kid. You know how Christmas morning works, right? You get that gift on Christmas morning, not because you earned it. In fact, you probably were a selfish little brat, huh? (laughs) But what did mom and daddy do for you? What did grandma and grandpa do for you anyways? They got you a gift. And that sinful, human, greedy nature rips open the gift and wants to run off and start playing with it. But what does mom and dad say first? Ah, 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 little Johnny. Come back here. What do you say? Thank you, Grandma. Now give Grandma a hug and a kiss. Thank you, Grandma. Isn't that proper? Isn't that right? To say thank you for the gift? So when God gives you the greatest gift of all, the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, isn't it right for you to say thank you? Don't you just want to say thank you? I do. And here's the beautiful part. You don't even have to come up with ways to say thank you. The Ten Commandments, God in his love for you, tells you how you can say thank you to him. Beautiful. And now I don't live under fear of the law of a, as a curb because I don't want to kill anybody. And I'm not offended. I'm not offended when somebody holds up the law of a mirror and says, Hey, guy, why don't you take a self-check here for a minute? And when they hold up that mirror and I go, Holy smokes, I look like junk. But I don't have to live like, I don't have to live ticked off and offended. I don't have to live afraid that God's going to smash me because I know the truth that Jesus actually died for something, that I have real reasons to need a Savior. That's what the law teaches me. Look what would have happened to you, Pastor Wells, had Jesus not died for you. And of course, I want to turn and say thank you. Paul wrote to the church in Rome, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. 
Present your bodies as, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is a way you worship. 2 Corinthians 5.15, He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves. Stop living for yourself. Jesus didn't set you free so that you can live for yourself. You have a higher purpose. You have a bigger calling. You have a, you're part of a bigger plan. You have a bigger role to play. How tiny and pathetic if you would just shrivel up into your own little world. He died for you. So that you who live might no longer live for yourself, but for him who who for their sake died and was raised. God's word teaches us that Jesus offered his life as a sacrifice for our sins. And that we have a real reason to be thankful. Friends, do you see now the role of the law? Do you see how the law holds before you? what Christ has saved you from. He saved you from an eternity of agony and anger and pain and death in hell. And he saved you from a little, tiny, shriveled up, self-centered, scared, angry life. And he set you free for service to him. He set you free for your role in a bigger story, for your role to serve him by serving other people and not in an effort to get to heaven. That's the gift. It's already free. You already have heaven. Just say thank you for it. Thank you, Jesus, for taking away my sins. Thank him for the real blessing and the real torture and the real condemnation that he served you from. And thank him that he sets you free to live a thank-filled life. You know, the awesome part is that for Christians, we get to always say, the best is yet to come. No matter how bad it is in life, we can say through faith in Christ, it will get better. I got heaven. And no matter how good it is, we still get to say this fails in comparison to what I have coming. That's the role of God's law. It drives you. It pushes you onto your knees. It offends you of yourself so that you would flee to Christ who never broke a law. That's the role of God's law. A curb, a mirror, and for Christians, a guide, a way to say thank you. And now it's my turn to say thank you. Thank you for your attention for yet another episode of Twice the Lutheran. Clearly, we can't cover everything in every podcast episode. Clearly, I can't anticipate all of your questions, but I can perhaps respond to them if you would just let me know what they are. Share with me your questions, your comments, your concerns, maybe even your corrections. 
Email me podcast at twice the Lutheran dot org. Again, that email address podcast at twice the Lutheran dot org. Thank you again, friends, for joining me for another episode. See you again soon.